Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking on the last day of August and exactly one week before the official first day of school for most students in New York City public schools for the 2023-24 school year. So this is our back to school episode with the chair of the New York City Council's Education Committee, City Council Member Rita Joseph, who is a Brooklyn Democrat and a former educator for over two decades. I wanted to have Councilmember Joseph on the show for a while. Very happy to host her today for this conversation where we have no shortage at all of things to discuss about what's happening in New York City schools, the new city budget that was agreed upon between the city council and the mayor at the very end of June, how it relates to education funding, of course. There are a variety of issues to touch on, including the thousands of recently arrived migrant children who are joining the public school system over the last year and continuing into this school year, a new law related to how the city is mandated now by the state to reduce class sizes and much more. For those listening who don't know, I used to be a teacher myself. I spent about a decade working in schools after college. I went to graduate school in Massachusetts to get my master's in teaching and wound up teaching high school history for six years at a large public school there where I had done my student teaching. And that was before I moved back to New York City and shifted into journalism about a dozen years ago. Uh, but enough about me. Uh, City Council Education Chair Rita Joseph is here, and we're going to try to touch on her top priorities as chair of the Education Committee, things she's recently been looking at, some hearings that might be coming up at the City Council that she'll be chairing or co-chairing, what she's watching for most here as the new school year begins, concerns, uh, hopes, <laughs> and all that uh, as we touch on broader education issues, including but not limited to some of the things I already mentioned relating to school funding, the integration of thousands of recently arrived migrant children to the city. There is also the potential of a school bus driver strike right at the start of the school year here. There is questions around student enrollment in city schools and how funding is attached to enrollment and whether there will be any reductions in school budgets mid-year this year. The New York City Department of Education budget is roughly $40 billion, and it makes up more than one-third of the total city budget. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about how the Adams administration has been handling that. As I mentioned, student enrollment levels, there have been uh, large declines in city public school enrollment over the last several years, but that seems to be leveling off a bit. There are issues around how the city schools are dealing with uh, any learning loss, so to speak, that has come up during the pandemic. There are issues around uh, how children who've lost loved ones during the pandemic are dealing with the trauma of the pandemic and those losses uh, and, and their education. There are questions around the 3K program in the city and how the Adams administration is handling that. I could go on and on. There's many, many things to try to get to here. Uh, and, and even more broadly, and maybe this is where we'll start in a minute, but there have been questions raised, including by the city council speaker, Adrian Adams, about where is the overall Mayor Eric Adams, school chancellor David Banks education vision? What is it? Is there one? They've had a big focus on reading and dyslexia screenings, and that's that's been a major focus where they've gotten a lot of kudos. But is there much beyond that? Uh, the chancellor and the mayor have promised to battle the education bureaucracy. Are they doing anything there? We'll get 
uh, Councilmember Joseph's uh, stance on some of these topics. School starts for most New York City students on Thursday, September 7th. Of course, principals, teachers, and other school professionals are already working to get ready for students' arrival. Uh, I'll be looking to have other education-focused guests on the show here in the coming weeks and months to assess how the new school year is going. In the past, I've been joined on the show multiple times by the heads of the principals' union and the teachers' union. Uh, I'll be extending an invitation to Chancellor David Banks to come on the show and talk about the new school year and the larger vision for city schools that he and the mayor have. But today, uh, Council Member Rita Joseph, very quickly before I bring her on, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, I've had some excellent in-depth conversations this summer. Find any or all of them at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts. Recent guests have included public advocate Jamani Williams on a whole bunch of topics, the co-chairs of the City Council's Progressive Caucus, Councilmember Shahana Hanif and Lincoln Ressler. I was joined recently by the two top leaders of the New York City Housing Authority, the city's public housing, home to hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, to talk about their vision and plans that they're implementing uh, at public housing in the city. Recently was joined by New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli, Republican of Staten Island, to talk about how Republicans are advancing their priorities and the upcoming city council elections this fall and other great guests as well. So again, find any or all of those after you listen to this one, of course. City council member Rita Joseph is the chair of the council's education committee, a Brooklyn Democrat, a former educator. After winning election in 2021, she has represented the 40th city council district for the last year and a half or so, and that includes parts or all of Flatbush, Prospect, Lefferts Gardens, Kensington, Ditmas Park, and Southern Crown Heights. Councilmember Joseph came to the United States from Haiti in her youth, and according to her bio, she's been an advocate and organizer since she was a teenager. She spent her 20s raising her children while organizing protests. Uh, she began working in education where she spent two decades in a variety of roles, including teaching right up until the time she was elected to the city council and then took office at the beginning of 2022. And she was subsequently named chair of the education committee by Speaker Adams. And here we are. Council member Rita Joseph, chair of the education committee in the city council. Thank you for joining me. How are you? Well, thank you for having me. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thank you. Uh, as uh, as a couple of uh, former educators here this no, time we of are year, forever I don't know about... educators. Forever, forever. Right, right. I was forever. I was thinking similarly as I said that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this time this time of year is always uh, exciting and nerve wracking. Um, there there's a lot of stuff going on. As I mentioned, uh, I didn't even get to half the list I actually had here because I didn't want to take too too long with that long introduction. But um, Let's start with a couple of the most pressing things before we zoom out a bit. There's there's major sort of pressing items here as the school year is about to begin. One is this potential school bus driver strike. What's your sense of where that's at? What are you most concerned about? Do you think the city really needs to accelerate its efforts to get a deal done so there's no disruption in transportation next week? Uh, do you think the city's contingency plans are in a good place? What are you looking at and thinking about as this school bus driver strike looms? Well, um, it, it brought me back to 2013 when we had a, a school strike before and it didn't work. 
um, our most fragile students were left behind. If you recall, the ride share needs a parent to accompany that child. This disrupts working families as well. So I'm I'm calling on the city. I spoke to the chancellor already. I'm calling on the city to make sure that they negotiate in good faith so that there is no disruption in the school ed in education. If you remember, I did a hearing on school transportation and it was October and it, there was no strike and students were still didn't have any routes and it was October and they had never stepped foot into New York City public schools. So you can imagine what a strike can do. Um, it would be very detrimental for families and students, um, especially our medical fragile students who must travel with nurses. How is that looking? That's some of the questions I was asking. I'm still waiting for answers on those. Those are very important questions. Uh, contingency plan, we can't give a second grade a Metro card. Someone has to travel with that child with a Metro card. So those are little intricate details that they must work out, iron out. I'm, I'm betting and I'm telling them that they must negotiate in good faith to come out with a contract, um, iron out the kinks, whatever it is to make sure that we get a good contract for New York City kids. We cannot afford a strike. 2013, I recall there were parents who did the right share who actually went to school with their children who stayed the day because they knew that at five, when school dis got dismissed, there was no one to take that child back to school. So I was in the classroom and I was an educator and I saw how disruptive that was. So we don't want to repeat what happened in 2013. We want to make sure we're moving our city children in the right direction um, without a bus, without a bus strike. Right. The city has put out the city. Yeah. The, the DOE put out a contingent Agency plan, free metro cards, reimbursements for some, uh, you know, rideshare, taxi rides, and such. But um, as you say, obviously, it would be very disruptive. Um, very disruptive. You know, this a is a situation, obviously. I mean, this is a situation, obviously, where rise of school year is going to begin. You know, the union has a lot of leverage, and so uh, you know those negotiations continue. Uh, this is. Uh, according to the city, uh, it could affect 4,400 routes across all five boroughs, impacting 80,000 students who rely on these rides to school, including 25,000 special education students. So uh, really important issue for the city to hopefully get resolved before school starts um, a week from when we're talking. We're speaking here on August 31st, uh, but folks might not be listening till right before school starts uh, for most students on September 7th. Um, is there anything you think the city can add to the contingency planning or is it really just, yeah, those are the, they, they have the pieces in place, but it's really just, you got to try to get to a deal here so that we don't have to use these contingency plans because no matter what, it's incredibly disruptive. Absolutely. Um, the, I don't think, I don't see anything cause I, I went through the plan. I was debriefed on it. I saw it and I read it and I was like, there's nothing else we can add unless you what get volunteers to accompany these children, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And then you have to take the time to vet out people. You don't know who they are. Um, so I, I just, again, emphasize, and I kept on making sure that I, I echoed that to the um, chancellor that they must find a way to work it out to work out the deal. If it's wages, look at the wages, look at other other counties, look, reach out for advice and work with other folks, bring all stakeholders to the table. Cause I know parents, um, there's a group called PISS. They already have a petition. Um, they're worried, they're worried. And these were the very same parents I met with prior to the hearing that was like, council members, October, my child has never been to school. 
and there was no strike. So you can imagine that would just push back and delay. A lot of our students, especially our um, most fragile and our students with special need, our D75, they look forward to going to school. They look forward to getting to go to school and being with their peers and socializing because that's all we can. Most of these students don't even can can attend after school because they must get back on the bus and head back home. So a lot of things are already taken away. So the school building is a place for them to come and be themselves and be with their friends. So we have to make sure we also provide that as well. There's a number of other pressing issues, but perhaps, uh, you know, 1A alongside that one is the question of, of um, integrating and providing schooling and getting kids enrolled who are recently arrived in the country. There's obviously been uh, over 100,000 asylum-seeking migrants who have arrived in the city over the last little over a year. Uh, That includes potentially somewhere around 20,000 students uh, for public schools. We don't have an exact number in part because uh, as a sanctuary city, the city does not ask for Uh, information about immigration status and other things when students come to be enrolled in school. So it's an estimate related to uh, students in temporary housing. And so actually, if if it's, you know, there could be a number of of recently arrived students who also aren't even in the city's uh, shelter system who have also enrolled. So the number could be closer to 30,000 or even even more. Um, But this has been going on since this past school year, uh, when a, when a lot of students arrive throughout the school year, so this has been an ongoing process. The city has stood up a program. Uh, there's obviously been the hiring of a number of additional shelter coordinators to help the students uh, in temporary housing, and this could include longtime New York families as well. Uh, make sure they're enrolled in school or stay in school or or able to transfer schools if they're moving around. Um, all that said, what are you most looking at here in terms of the enrollment, the integration, the services for students who are uh, recently arrived to the country? Are there major hiccups that you've seen? Are there things of most concern to you as the school year begins with getting students acclimated to school? Obviously, many of these students, uh, English is not their first language, so that's a big concern. What are you most focused on when we talk about especially the recently arrived uh, students who are among the asylum seeking migrants that have arrived in the city. I'm going to I'm going to tell you something, Ben. Um, This problem started since 2021. There's there was a wave, but they were not in our school system (laughs) because prior to going into office, when 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 we were watching the news and we saw the huge influx of folks under that bridge, myself and Council Member Lewis, we flew down to Texas we were under that border and we saw. And when we came in, they were coming in. But what was different about that wave was the fact that they were not in our shelter systems. They were doubling up at family homes. They were host families. They were coming in. They were already in our shelters, in our school systems. So that's why when you say they estimated, they really don't know how many New York City kids that were coming from the borders, that were migrants, that were already coming into the system. Because I had alerted uh, the previous administration and I said, Councilmember Lewis and I, we were in the borders. We saw this. And on our flight coming back from Texas, there were a bunch of migrants on them, but they were going to family members. They were not part of, they were not in our care. So we didn't know, we didn't have a number. Um, So one of the things we're seeing, and and even before um, this new influx of new New Yorkers were coming in, we sat down with the whole education budget that happened last year. We changed the formula, the FSF formula, which, which raised the amount for students in high poverty, and students living in shelters. 
So that was, so that came in, we were already creating the safety net without even having this crisis. So having this crisis, we're kind of cushioned now with when it came to school funding. And then that was that was based on when I saw what the whole debacle last year, as we talked previously, when I saw it, I said, wait a minute, I've been working with FSF since I was an educator and that's 20 years old. That formula is old. We need to revamp it. And we came together. We had a working group and we were able to change the formula to meet the needs of students who are living in um, shelters and students with high poverty. So coming in now, we're, sh- we're, we're, we're closing in. And when I came in, I said, we need to, we, when I came in, they already had, I, I believe, 100 100- they had, um, I think, 75 um, shelter-based coordinators because when students transfer from shelters, there was never a, a service to help them navigate New York City public schools. So we were able to put in 100 to make sure now they're coming in handy, working in the shelters with our new New Yorkers, making sure they're enrolled in schools, summarizing. And I visited some of the sites. I went to Roosevelt um, um, Hotel. There are a couple of um, sites in my district I visited to make sure that they know they're summarizing. School is coming up. Um, There's a group that was placed in Kensington that I made sure the school had the support they had. We worked with Project Open Arms to make sure that every school who had 10 or more migrants were receiving $2,000 per student for support. We did um, borough-based um, resource fairs to make sure they knew they can get IDNYC, they can get coats. In my district alone, we gave out a 1,000 coats in December. This was the first winter for some of them. So we we were able to do that to support the migrants that were coming in. Um, as I told the, um, Melissa Ramos, who was running it, I said, we need more ENL coordinators, guidance counselors, and some of the languages that we're also seeing are not the languages that um, New York City public schools are used to. For example, in Harlem, we saw a huge influx of Senegalese. They speak Wolof and they speak French and English. So now you're going to have to rely on community members to be interpreters and translators for these unique group of population that's coming in. And also one of the things we were seeing a lot of the parents didn't know. I've, I've met parents with students with special needs. They didn't know that they can write a letter to have their student, the students evaluated in their native language. So they didn't even know that. So that was one of the things that um, when I met with the shelter um, coordinators and that was one of the things I said, you can advise the parents. These are the next steps. Um, we were made sure they knew where the food pantries were. We were redirecting traffic, working with the principals across. And I've, and I've visited many, many of the shelter site, the Herc sites, um, along with um, Flavia, who runs the STH and foster care unit. As you watch um, right now, how the execution goes with your eye, obviously, uh, with your role in oversight here. Are there things that you're most concerned about in terms of having everything in place as the school year starts? Is it the shelter-based coordinators? Is it the uh, English language teachers making sure there's enough in in every school? Is it the mental health uh, services available? Anything that you see right now that seems to be the the biggest potential area or areas of deficiency as the school year gets going? Or is it sort of like we put a lot of things in place, there's been funding added for a variety of things, and we sort of just have to see how it goes? Or is there anything that's raised a red flag for you here on these issues, you know, as we're about to see the start of the school year? It can be as it goes. It has to be enrollment. One of the first things I'm getting calls that enrollments have been delayed. So I've been reaching out to the enrollment office at New York City Public Schools to make sure our students are enrolled. One, in order for that, for us to evaluate and know where we place our students, we they have to be enrolled. So that's the number one thing I've been getting. And this uh, enrollment, especially kids who have arrived and are in shelter. 
character. Absolutely. Getting Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I was actually reading uh, Chalkbeat New yes. York, which covers education, obviously had a really good recent article about this. And big shout out to Chalkbeat because anything you want to know about what's going on in, in New York City schools, you can find Chalkbeat coverage of that. So um, th- there was a recent article there about some of the questions about these enrollment delays and as anybody who's worked in schools knows or had a, a child in schools or even been to school themselves knows, you know, it, it can be very important to sort of be there at the start of the school year, even even coming in sort of a week after the year has started. It happens all the time, but it can be a little bit additionally challenging, especially when in, you know students are facing challenges to begin with. Um, you know, it's it's good to have a placement and be able to start right at the beginning of the school year. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm looking to make sure they're enrolled. And then from there, we work we work out the other kinks. The most important thing is getting them in the building, make sure they're assigned, the parents know, and um, making sure they have support. Language access will be very important. Um, this is one of the things we made sure we had in the budget. We had immigrant family engagement communication. That means they get the information in their native language. So if it's Spanish and English, Bengali, Haitian Creole, Urdu, they would get all of their documents in those languages. Is there any concern around the concentration of newly arrived children in certain schools and or the refusal of certain schools or school districts to help take in students? Anything jumping out at you there? Obviously, uh, the way the city has contracted with emergency shelters, which very often are hotels, um, but not only – uh, you know, there, there are sometimes concentrations in certain neighborhoods, but the way the scale of this has been, you know, there, there are a lot of shelters all across Manhattan and Queens and the Bronx and, and Brooklyn, especially very limited on Staten Island. But um, but still, there there tend to be concentrations sometimes. Uh, and there, of course, are communities in the city that often don't want to sort of chip in on challenging circumstances. Any of that stuff? concerning absolutely. to you um absolutely there's a district in manhattan i'm not going to name it that um does have a huge amount but also what what i don't want to blame them too much is they've never had that population so that's one of the things i i told um melissa and i spoke i spoke to the chancellor you got to send in the support as well They've never seen so many migrant students. Some of them didn't have bilingual teachers. They had to bring in bilingual teachers. They had to get a bilingual para. So I said, now they have to get an ENL coordinator because they needed somebody to come in and test the kids to see where they are. What level are they? Where should we place them? Are they ESL one, two, three? What? How many minutes of services? So all of that has to be in place as well. I'm not going to blame them for not understanding, but if we provide the right resources and the tools for them, they should be able to do it. Because I did visit a school in a district where they had never seen so many um, students who non ENL students are multilingual learners. They have never been, they've never dealt with that. But I saw that they were learning to adapt. And I said, they have to be part of the community. You have to make them feel welcome and you have to integrate them. They're children. From the ages of three to 12, you can learn a new language with no accent. So give them a matter of time, they will be able to acquire a new language, but you must make them feel welcome. And we will make sure you have the support, the ENL coordinators, the ESL teachers, the bilingual paras, the social workers, and all of that support for them to make it work. On the flip side of some of that, is there concern about too many, especially high need students going into already especially high need schools? Um, you know, how, how do you see the Department of Education navigating that? Because you don't want a situation where you already have high need schools with a lot of students that need extra help 
um, dealing with all sorts of community challenges and so forth. And then you you just have a situation where the the infrastructure is really just buckling as you add more and more high need students. When, as we're just discussing, as you mentioned about, you know, a certain district in Manhattan that you don't want to you don't want to name, um, you know, you have the sort of the opposite situation. But is, is there concern about sort of the, con- you know, making sure there aren't schools and districts that just feel so overwhelmed by the, you know, the immense need of their student bodies added onto here? Yes, that was one of the things I said. Um, we want to make sure we're distributing them equally throughout the city. Um, and you know, um, most of the most because of the law, the McKinney law, they must go to school where the shelter is. So that was one of the other things. But if if there is no if there's no ESL support at all at that school, they should be able to find a neighboring school to be able to work it out. And one of the things they were finding when we were speaking to the parents was the fact that the parents didn't know how to get around. So they knew from point A to point B. So that's why I had also suggested that one of the things we used to do was have a ESL adult program for D79. So that was one of the things to also Hey, if we're ta- if we're educating your child, we should also educate the parent to make sure they have language access. They can learn a new language to navigate the system. Is it your sense that the DOE is is handling this appropriately at this point in terms of those concentration concerns? Um. Yes and no. To be determined. <laughs> to be mm-hmm. determined. Correct. Because I'm mm-hmm. I'm because I'm always assessing. I'm always asking, what are you doing? I'm always asking the questions. Keep me abreast, and they do. So I'm always like, make sure you spread it out. Don't leave it concentrated in one area. Spread it out among mm-hmm. you know. Because we did have a decline in enrollment, as you mentioned. So we do have space for new for new students. We lost about 120,000 students. Some students, they still don't know where they are. And that's a question I constantly ask. What happened to them? If they move to another state, sometimes it takes a long time for them to show up in our discharge system. So they also have to figure out where the students are. Um, and we have the space to welcome as many students as we can, just that we have to have the infrastructure to support the students, not just to say, hey, come in, welcome. We have so many room, but we have to have mm-hmm. the support. And as an educator, ESL and bilingual programming was always a shortage area. And I can recall I had a student who needed um special education evaluation for bilingual speech pathologist. It took two years because districts that the district that I worked in only had one bilingual speech pathologist for the whole district. The um, I want to come back to the enrollment questions, including some of what you just raised. But before we come back to that, um, I imagine some of these things we're already discussing here and others that I mentioned and others that are on your mind will be under consideration for you for or oversight hearings that you might call, do you have a sense of what that might look like for the rest of this calendar year? You have a joint uh, oversight hearing already on the calendar for September 20th with the Committee on Technology and the City Council. That's about the role of artificial intelligence, emerging technology, and computer instruction in New York City public schools. So obviously, big, important topics there. Are there other things on your mind that might require specific oversight hearings over the next few months uh, that you already are thinking about? I'm definitely, I'm looking to do one on the dyslexia. I'm doing, I'm looking to do one on um, Project Pivot. I'm also looking to do a, a, a second part to the transportation piece, um, especially uh, with the looming strike. Oh yeah, I'm looking to do that. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yeah. And- 
Project Pivot, we explain a little bit that that relates to restorative justice and restorative justice, school community safety. Schools, mm-hmm. school safety. And we saw a lot. Um, we want to make sure that um, we're using we're not overlapping, but we're using that program efficiently to make sure that I want to see the data that matches it. Why can't this be a model citywide um, in, in terms of that and how we lo- using cure violence groups to go into the schools um, to make sure that we bring down whatever it is that they want to restore the restorative justice mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the um you mentioned dyslexia and, and dyslexia screenings is obviously as i mentioned the intro a major focus for mayor adams who's talked about his own struggles with dyslexia and lack of uh assessment identification help not getting that growing up teacher training around that mm-hmm. there, there should be because mm-hmm. a lot a lot of teachers are not trained on that. And one of the things we were able to look at along working with D79, no, D79 goes all the way into Rikers Island. So we're looking this fall in the East River Academy um, um, school that we have on Rikers Island to, to do the first dyslexia screening on Rikers Island for students in East River Academy. Mm-hmm. The mayor and chancellor announced plans to do uh, basically universal dyslexia screenings, you know, as needed or as identified um, across the school system with the initial goals. Do you have a sense yet of, of how that's gone and been rolled out? Or is that basically what you're saying? You want to have potentially a hearing on this fall to check in on that? Yeah, I want to definitely check in. I know in the Bronx, they had their first day. They, they will be opening their first dyslexia school focused solely on dyslexia. So I plan to visit and see how they do their rollout as well before I do my hearing and to hear um, and how are the teachers trained. And I think everyone who's teaching reading with this new reading um, curriculum should also have some dyslexia screening to know what to look for um, when when you do assess the student, when you do your running records, What are how are, how are the students being assessed? And how are um, does dyslexia come in and what role does it play and how do we provide support for that student? Mm-hmm. Um, so that gets at a key piece, as I mentioned in the introduction, reading, literacy, dyslexia screenings and interventions. Uh, probably disagree, obviously, if you have a different perspective, but I would probably say has been sort of the number one Mayor Adams, Chancellor Banks uh, sort of focus priority issue related to education. And then there's sort of been questions around, well, what else? What else is really part of the Adams Bank's vision here? Is there Are there other things that from your purview, you would sort of cite to people, you know, you're chair of the council education committee, somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I don't really know what Mayor Adams and Chancellor Banks really care about when it comes to education. Maybe they've heard about literacy and dyslexia screening. So you might they might know that or you might cite them to that. But is there anything else that you sort of have really seen or identified as their top priorities when it comes to education? Or do you agree with the assessment that we don't really know the broader vision from them? Um, I've been waiting for, I know dyslexia, but it shouldn't just be, oh, dyslexia. It should be, what What do we do with that? Now, now one, once you screen the students, what are the interventions? What are the supports? What are the, what's in place for that student? Reading is the same thing. Reading, we, we, reading, reading, I've always said that you have to be proficient in order for everything else to work. If you're not reading proficiently, nothing else make, will make sense for you and you will struggle in everything that you do. Um, 
second, by the time you're in second grade, you should be able to read fluently. So that should also be part of their goals. Like I'm screening for dyslexia and I'm doing a reading curriculum. By second grade, our students should be reading proficient because that in third grade is when you take your very first city exam. So if I'm struggling from K to one, two, I'm playing catch up because you're playing catch up because when you're reading, you're really, really playing catch up. If you're struggling to sound it out, there's no comprehension because you're still struggling. So by the time you get to second grade, you should be reading for, for, um, proficiently because you're taking the test in third grade. So if I'm not reading with comprehension and I'm not understanding or processing it and there was no screening, that's why I think screening should start as early as kindergarten. So there's intervention, just like um, as a special education student, you've had students that do leave, wind up leaving special education because they had the proper support in place. I had my student in fourth grade. By the time he got to fifth grade, he was decertified. He didn't need the special education support anymore because he had it so young with the early intervention that he was able to get out of special education. Mm -hmm. That support has to be there. The intervention, the assessment has to be very important as well. Mm -hmm. In May, the mayor and the chancellor announced a a literacy program, New York City Reads, they call it, um, that is supposed to supposed to really enhance literacy uh, with with some of the planks that you're getting at here and some of the focus areas. And that's supposed to be beginning to be implemented this school year. So I imagine that'll be something also to keep keep close tabs on here uh, as you do your oversight work. Do you think the way that Chancellor Banks and Mayor Adams has, have focused on literacy instructions and uh, what curriculum is being used in school and ensuring phonics instruction. Do you think they're on they're, they're doing the right thing with the way they've approached this so far? Obviously, as you're getting at, we have to see all the details of implementation and execution. But do you think they're sort of on the right track in this one area where we know they've been focused? Um, they're on the right track. I visited some of the training over the summer with the teachers. I'm always outside, <laughs> making sure that when they tell me something, I'm there to look at it myself, not secondhand. Um, I don't want secondhand info. I want to make sure first firsthand info that I can always report back. So during the summer, one of the unique things I saw, I saw early childhood providers were being trained on the reading program. I thought that was very interesting that they're starting as early in early childhood and with mm-hmm. phonetic base and all that assessment, phonemic awareness and all that. So I was watching the training. I went to see early childhood and then I went to see K to two training. I, I went to two different sites that they had training for the teachers and they were liking it. They said this is for the first time they will have like a set formal um, curriculum to follow in early childhood. That has never been done. Everybody was allowed to do whatever they need to do in early childhood. So if they start structuring, I always said as an educator, if your bottom is strong, your top will be strong. So if you build a home and the foundation is strong, your top will be strong. So if they're starting at early childhood to make sure by then, if there's any problem, you will see it. And you can then come in and provide the intervention early on to make sure that you're supporting that students to their um, educational journey. So I'm going to keep my eye on them. That doesn't mean they get a G pass like my students used to (laughs) stay in fifth grade. They don't get a G pass, but I will keep my eye on it. Is there what would you would you identify anything else that you that you've seen from them as top priorities? You know, I know um, when there's been some pushback, the Department of Education has said, you know, the chancellor and the mayor are also have been focused on uh, restoring and expanding the gifted and talented programming. 
that Mayor de Blasio was looking to sort of phase out and replace with a universal uh, enrichment. (laughs) We won't we won't go into all that debate, but that's something that the chancellor and the mayor have cited as a focus area. The summer rising program for, you know, enhanced summer uh, experiences and learning. Um, They've had a bit of a focus on sort of career and technical education, although I'm not totally sure of the status of them implementing any of those ideas. I haven't I don't think we've heard a lot about that since they talked about it initially. Um, Are those the things that you would agree you sort of see as some of their other focus areas or do you see sort of a deficiency of vision or there's another way to think about it, which is. You know, a lot of Mayor Adams's overall approach to government has been about saying, you know, we have a lot of stuff in place that we just need to make work better. So it's not about reinventing the wheel and coming in with fresh ideas. It's about actually making things that are in place work better. What's what's your sort of assessment of of any of that? That's exactly what the chancellor always says: scale, sustain and um, what works. That's what he always says. One of the things I always tell New York City public schools, they do the worst and marketing themselves. I visited schools across the city, across the borough, five boroughs. I visited as the education chair. I take pride in visiting schools and seeing what works and what doesn't work. There's so many amazing CTE programs across the city. I went to Chelsea. I went to another school in the Bronx where these kids build their own gaming system. There's another program that I went to where these students um, fix cars. It's an automotive program in the Bronx and you can bring your car to them. They actually charge you to fix the car and they partner with a car company and you could come in and do that. Chelsea um, Korea Technical Education, they do graphic design. These students are learning fiber optics and they learn, they get a certificate when they leave the program, they can start working. Um, New York City Public Schools, um, I didn't get a chance to attend the um, press conference, but they did a partnership with Google because New York City is also a tech hub and we must must invest in that and make sure our students are also part of that, um, that tech hub. So Google headquarters is right here would be a better place to partner up with it. Um, One of the things I'm also requiring, journalism. We don't see a lot of journalism programs in schools. So I'm circulating a a dear colleague letter right now to make sure that we implement journalism in schools. Um, So there's a lot of things that are working. I think they just need to, like I told them, market them. Because every night before I go to school, charter schools are promoting themselves. They market themselves. They're on bus stops. They're on TV. I'm watching News 12 and I'm watching this cute little boy always talk about his um, charter school with his grandparents in the background. We need to do that. And I told the chancellor that. I said, you have such amazing programs, but yet no one knows about them. You have an amazing NEST program for students with autism. You have an amazing AIMS program in D75 for preschoolers with special needs, you're not talking about them. If you don't know about them, you don't know about them. But if you know, you know. So I said parents shouldn't have to guess where the great programs are. You should be able to advertise them, sell them. Speaking of that, uh, we talked a little bit about this, but um, the New York City public school enrollment is down roughly 100,000 students uh, since uh, um, before the pandemic. That's uh, got a number of factors to it. Clearly, that includes families that left the city uh, during the pandemic. There's also been uh, gradual decreases, I think, in, in enrollment at the very beginning of school. You have more students leaving the system than are coming in at the other end. That's been the result of you know birth rates and things like that, long-term trends, but clearly an accelerated trend in the pandemic years. Um, when I raise this to some people, they obviously point somewhat to the pandemic. 
Uh, other people quickly point to the lack of affordable housing. Um, other people point to questions about, you know, the quality of the schools. There's there's a lot of things at play here. For you, A, is this is this actually a problem at this point? Or is it more just like, okay, this is sort of leveling off a little bit now. And what we really need to do is just focus on the students we have and then you know, maybe more students will, you know, more families will come to the city, especially if we build more affordable housing. But right now we still have, you know, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of of kids to educate. So we don't need to worry that much about enrollment we've lost. Let's educate the kids we have. Or is this something that you see as something of an existential crisis for the city's public schools? Not a crisis, but as a as a forever educator, and I think you'll agree on my point, we use data to, to drive our instruction. So New York City Public Schools should also use data to drive what did we do wrong? How can we get it right? So that we don't lose anymore. We, we're going to sustain what we have. And what do we do? What do we do right? And studying our data. When did they exit the system? How? Why? When? And what can we do to make sure the ones that we do have in our care in our public school systems, we are maintaining them and we're providing that level. I would have loved to reach out to find out from parents, why did you leave? I know affordability played a rate. I, you know you saw about 200,000 Black families left New York City because it was no longer affordable. Housing is not affordable. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. Certain places you can go, you can rent a three-bedroom for $1,800. In New York, that's three, dollars $4,000 a month. And these apartments are cramped. They were no longer building for families as well. I, I, I looked at um, whenever they have a new development in my district, the developers always invite me to go visit because I'm and I'm like, you guys are not building for families. There's no room. This little two people can't stand in the living room. I'm like, this is not sustainable in, in maintaining families to stay in these areas. So there's a variety of, of things. Um, I know they also blame the fact that we couldn't decide whether to open school, close schools. Remember, our buildings were old. Ventilation would have been very important in, in bringing um, students who, who had health issues as well. <laughs> Who, who stayed home. Um, so I thought I, I, that was one of the things that when I talked to parents, they're like, well, you guys couldn't decide whether we, we are we going to open school, close school, school was open, closed. So that disrupted families as well who had to work. I remember during the, during the pandemic, um, I was supporting an ENL parent that had to work every single day. So I was the one who had to make the phone call because he was in the house with his grandmother who did not speak English. I would be the one to call every morning to make sure that I wake him up so he can join classes. So the, one of the things I did during the pandemic was, and I still maintain that habit even out of the pandemic, to do wellness checks. I would call in and I said, hey, this is a wellness check. Are you guys okay? Do you have food? Is is there anything we can do to support? Even now I'll text a friend, like I'll text you in two weeks and I'll be like, Ben, are you okay? This is a wellness text to make sure you're good. So these were the things that supported and I would be able to send out information. I created a WhatsApp, I created a WhatsApp group and I would tell parents, there's food pantries here. There's This is where you can go get lunch. And I created parent leaders through my WhatsApp to say, hey, the school is giving lunch, but you can take more than one lunch and you can share it with the families in your building that cannot leave. So it, it, it was like building community, but you have to have that community in place. You have to have data. Data drives my policy. Data drives us as educators to know how, how do we teach the next lesson? Did our kids get the lesson or not? So the lesson here for New York City Public School is they should look at the data. How did we lose the students? Why did we lose them? How do we, how do we um, keep the ones we have and attract more? I want to get to a couple of the things to do in our time is running low. One quick follow-up on that. 
one of the things I wanted to ask you about with that is there's obviously uh, the importance of tracking some of that related to families that might have left the system and left the city. There's also real questions about, and I think you got at this earlier, kids that just stopped coming to school uh, that are still living in the city. And there's real questions around, you know, is this a lot of teenagers who are just falling through the cracks? Is it teenagers who lost caregivers and started to work as, you know, to provide for their families? You know, there's a lot of questions around what percentage of the kids that are no longer enrolled are still living in the city. And there, there's obviously some group that went to private schools, uh, perhaps Catholic schools, et cetera. But there's also this question about students that we don't really know potentially what happened to some significant number of kids. Is there any, do you have any sense that the DOE has, uh, has a list like that is checking in on these kids, you know, before the pandemic, if you had chronic absenteeism, you know, there was, there was a real effort to identify those kids, uh, check in on the household, et cetera. And I think a lot of that got lost during the pandemic years. What's your sense of that? I agree a thousand percent. There was a report, there was a, uh, there was a, in Chalkbeat, uh, was it New York Times? There, there was an article about this young boy. He had a fear of going back into the building. So his mom would drive him every day around the school and he never got out. He was like, mom, I'm not ready. Until one day he finally set it up. If I find that article, I will share it with you. And it took a, it took almost a year for him to step his foot back into the building. But it took a lot of work. And I, and I met a student. I went to visit a transfer high school in Canarsie. And there was a student that went through that. He lost both parents. Both parents died. And he's in high school. So he had to go to a transfer high school. But what's unique about the transfer high school, you know, they provide wraparound services, including jobs, social work, pantries, mental health support. So he went there. And, and again, that was another group of population that I was watching that also went to work because they had no one to take care of them. So they dropped out. So what I was saying was we need to capture that, that group of students and offer them an alternative to high school. Maybe you, should, you could come in the evening. Maybe you can have early classes from eight to 12 and then you can leave. What what do we do? And this is where I think maybe also the virtual, I, I know there's a virtual part of schools that they're gonna bring for students who fell behind. Maybe that's one way of getting them back as well. Um, so that's why I'm saying the data would have been so helpful. So maybe that's a great idea. I'm gonna start looking for that data to find out where they are. How can we support? Because that young man, I found him in a, a transfer high school and he was like, council member, both of my parents died. I had to come with a live with an aunt who I, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a, uh, before the pandemic, we covered this a lot at Gotham Gazette before the pandemic, there was a, there was a real crisis of what are referred to as out of school, out of work youth, which is uh, young adults, 16 to 24 who are not, not in school and are not employed and, you know, are very often the, among the most vulnerable populations. And obviously, um, you know, susceptible to to lots of lots of issues uh, in the city. And getting involved um, in the justice system as well is one exactly, of the things yeah. that we were seeing. Um, and a lot of these young people also foster students. We saw a lot of foster youth as well come into. Um, and that's one of the things under my leadership when I came in, um, when I read the data on foster on foster youth. Um, 
as you may know, I was a foster mom um, and I adopted my two younger boys. And when they came in, there was no support in the New York City public schools for foster youth. So I created an office under my leadership. It started under de Blasio, but I finished it across. I brought it up across the finish line where they provide mm-hmm. support for foster youth. When they're placed in a foster home, they have transportation, they have support because they're more likely to get suspended, more likely to repeat a grade, more likely to have an IEP. So there was no support. So now there's an office in there just to deal with foster youth along with the agencies that they come with. Uh, so much more for us to discuss. Let me ask you two more questions before I let you go. Um, one, I'm looking at a couple of lists, or I was looking at a couple of lists in preparation for this conversation around the amount of federal one-time funding pandemic era aid that is supporting ongoing or what people want to be ongoing New York City education programs. There are uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of federal dollars being spent on a variety of things from 3K to summer rising, uh, a a number of other things, community schools. I mean, it's a long list. Anyway, I have a list here from Advocates for Children, and and that's a nonprofit group um, that does a lot of great work and and, um, thankful to them for the information they they sent over uh, when I inquired about this. And then also the state controller, Tom DiNapoli, has a really good list on this, too, that shows what are commonly referred to as the federal fiscal cliffs, right? This is money that's going to run out and the city programs that rely on this money could fall off the cliff. Um, As you go into this new school year and you look ahead to upcoming city budgets, how are you thinking about this issue? Because we are talking about quite a few programs reliant on hundreds of millions of dollars, as I said, you mentioned community schools, I mentioned 3K, summer rising program, there's there's school social workers that have been hired with this money. I mean, there's a variety of, of things here. How are you thinking about this and what's going to happen going forward to make sure these cliffs don't become too problematic for the city? Oh, absolutely. And I said that the minute I came in, I took over the position. I started looking at the same list and I work closely with advocates for children. Randy Levine is is amazing. Um, we we That's something I'm already starting to talk to with the chancellor, with the mayor, with the speaker, um, and how do we make sure that we keep these programs in place? These programs were funded with temporary dollars and they knew they were going to run out. So we have to create a sustainable way for us to make. And every one of these programs are relevant. One, every one of them is needed. So it's not like we can do away with community schools. Community school is a game changer. When I came in, I created 10 more. That's how many. That's how much I knew that they can help. When I came in, I created 10 more to work with um the hardest hit zip codes with COVID. Most of them went to the Bronx. You know, the Bronx was hit, was hit the most with COVID. So um, so that was created inside the council initiative. So now how I'm working with them. We I haven't had a I haven't had the foolproof plan yet, but I know it's a fiscal clip that we must address and we must maintain these programs. Um some of the pivot um project pivot is also funded through um federal dollars, through those temporary um stimulus dollars that will go away, will sunset really soon. So we have to look at where, how do we do this? 3K, one of the biggest successful programs to getting 3K into. Um, the council have a, created a pilot program to 3K, which is um, extended day, extended year program. Right. After the mayor cut the, the seats, we were able to put that so we can expand on it. 
in order to, because parents, they don't get off. I were, I was an educator. I didn't get out of 220. My kid got out of 220. I didn't get out of 220. It was right there. Parents really do have to work and they have to come in at a decent time. So that was the work. But I'm working on that. It's um, haven't planned it all out yet, but I'm working on it. Um, one of the other things we we started, we started NYCHA um, in the NYCHA Wyckoff Houses, uh, started a partnership with D79 to create GED programs so they can just come down and get their GED program um, in Wyckoff Houses. So that's one of the first pilot programs I'm doing with D79. Um, so I'm super excited about that. Um, a lot of exciting things happening, but a lot of work. Yeah, one, one of those things, last question, uh, and I know I have to let you go and thank you for all the time. Um, you are part of the uh, class size reduction working group here. The mayor, the administration have been critical of this state law requiring class size reduction. They say it's unfunded. State Senator John Liu, who is a key uh, player behind this, has laid out very clearly where he says the funding is to implement this through increased state aid uh, that has is coming down uh, each year now. Um, what do you see as the sort of top one or two uh, sort of pitfalls or parts of this issue that need to be tackled here? Is there something or two that you're saying to the Department of Education or you're bringing to any of these meetings on this class size working group where you're saying, listen, you got to get past this issue about the funding because the funding is there. Are you in agreement with the city that the funding isn't really there as John Lou says it is? Or are there other operational issues that you're most focused on when it comes to this multi-year phase in of the class size reduction law? Um, the funding has to be in place. I'm going to trust my colleague that is there in place. Also, I'm calling on the, I've been calling on the state. They also have to look at the foundational aid formula. So if the city looked at the FSF formula, they must look at the foundational aid formula as well and how we fund, how we fund schools from the state level. Um, so the funding for me and also ACS, a, um, SCA being, meaning being able to build schools as well to, to, to meet the needs of the students. Um, I've always said that smaller classrooms, um, class size really does matter. When I first started teaching, 32 students in a class, someone is going to fall through the crack. 32 students, 32 of everything, I think a small a small class size. So the two things for me is funding and making sure we have capital investment to make sure we have the space for our students. Hmm. Yeah, that seems like a big one that's going to need to be tied to any plan. And, and that's obviously part of part of the law and the requirements. Um, all right. Well, we have touched on a whole bunch of stuff here. Uh, thank you for all the time. City Council member Rita Joseph is a Brooklyn Democrat who chairs the City Council's Education Committee, a former uh, and ongoing longtime Whatever. educator. <laughs> um, obviously, a lot of things we touched on here that we'll be able to uh, check in on again, and you'll be holding hearing on, hearings on or bringing up in, in broader hearings. But um, thank you for hitting on a whole bunch of things. There were a number of things, obviously, we didn't get to uh, that I don't want people to think aren't important to us, but uh, only so much time here to discuss a variety of important education issues. So good luck with the start of the school year. I know you'll be visiting schools and keeping tabs on all this. So stay in touch and we'll touch base as the school year unfolds here. But thanks again, Rita Joseph, for all the time. Thank you, Ben, for having me. And definitely we'll do this again. This is not the this is the first of many. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs>